This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Okay, the scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to John, John 1, verses 14 through 18. It's on page 886 in your pew Bible. John 1, 14 through 18, page 886. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, your only son. We come because of his finished work with boldness free to draw near to you with full assurance that we have full access to your heart, your life, your purposes. God, this morning as we open your word together, would you grant us a spirit of revelation? God, would you grant us a spirit of illumination? Would you Come and open our eyes to see the man Jesus Christ. God, would you do in our midst what the prophet Isaiah declared that you would make the branch of the Lord beautiful and glorious in our eyes? God, would you make Jesus beautiful and glorious in this family? God, would we orient all of our lives around his majesty? around his splendor, around his beauty. And God, would you grant us eyes to see it? God, even in this passage, we do see that uh, earlier in this meditation on the word, John talks about the word being in the world, the world he created and the world not knowing him the word coming to his own and his own rejecting him. God, but any that were given the right to believe upon him by faith are given authority to be sons and daughters, not born by human ingenuity, not born by human purposes, but born by the spirit. God, so would you grant us the fruits of spiritual birth, even in this room this morning. God, for those who have experienced and tasted 
your life, I ask that you would grant us more revelation, more fruit in our hearts of understanding and seeing Jesus. And God, I ask for those in the room this morning who do not know Jesus, who have not yet come to put their faith in him fully. Jesus, would you cause the spirit to blow where he will this morning? God, and would you cause there to be a quickening at the proclamation of your word that new life would come forth where there is death? God, would you cause life to spring forth even in this room this morning? Because Jesus is glorious. Because he is beautiful. And would you let him be seen as such? We ask in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So this week we are looking at the truth that the scripture shows us that Jesus Christ is fully man. Last week we spent uh, our, our time together looking at the other reality of this paradox that lies at the heart of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ is fully God. And today we're going to look at what the scripture and this text has to say about Jesus's humanity. What does it mean for Jesus to have come in the flesh and live among us and the implications for that? And in some ways, this is going to be a painting with a pretty broad brush over the doctrine of Jesus's humanity. And over the next several weeks, there's going to be ways that we parse out what that means and implications of that and further explanation of that. But this morning, we're going to put the truth on the table for us uh, to be responded to in our hearts with faith and worship. So look with me here at the notes, uh, letter A, at the heart of the historic Christian confession, right at the middle of what we believe as the people of God lies a great paradox. Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, is fully God and he is fully man. The revelation of both of these truths in this paradox are utterly foundational to the Christian faith and the message of the gospel. Last week we highlighted that the gospel is contingent on the divinity of Jesus, meaning that Jesus Christ himself is God. The proclamation of the gospel necessitates that Jesus has the power and the authority to save you and only God has the power and authority to save you. So he must be fully God. But today we're going to, on the other side of this paradox, drill down into the reality that Jesus Christ must be a man uh, for the full measure of the gospel proclamation to find its heart and its meaning. Each of these truths have been contested and confronted through a lot of the church's history, yet holding fast to these truths are essential to rightly understanding, to worshiping, to following, to living in accordance with Jesus Christ. As we've talked about through this series, uh, the foundation of the church is the bedrock of Christ Jesus himself. And you could see that expressed in two ways. He is both the bedrock in reality, meaning he is the one to whom his church is joined. 
by the Holy Spirit. We are joined to Christ and in him we find our life and our substance and our meaning and our purpose. And we saw, even way back in the first sermon in this series, Matthew 16, when Peter gives this profession and confession of who Jesus is, the rock of the church is the rightly ordered belief around who Jesus is. And so it's important for us to spend time understanding and comprehending these truths together. So look at letter C. One of the things that we have to remember is that in seeking to understand such mysteries, right, these paradoxes of the Christian faith, that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man, there is this mysterious relationship here that the goal is not ultimately comprehension. And we talked about this last week, and as I preached, I felt like there were several times where I saw smoke coming out of people's ears, um, and this is going to happen in the same way again today. I, I, I fully imagine there might be a couple places where we have to slow down and go, hey, remember, comprehension, making sense of how this works together is not the goal. The goal is to receive this by faith in reverent submission to it and awe-filled worship. We are meant to have our jaws hit the floor, so to speak. That we marvel at the wonder of who God is and what he has done. That is the goal of these truths. Not that we can fully assess how this makes sense in our minds. These paradoxical truths of Christ's full divinity and full humanity are given by revelation and therefore must be received as God's gracious gift of making himself known so that we might live in communion with him. All right, Roman numeral two. This is just a quick review related to the word of God. So to rightly situate this first statement that we heard read, that the word was made flesh, we have to go back to some of the things that we put out last week related to who is this word of God. Letter A, John's gospel begins by showing us the person of the word of God. As we saw last week, the word of God is, there's three statements that John makes in the opening sentence of his gospel that give us the boundaries around understanding the uh, divinity of Jesus. These statements are that the word was eternally existent, meaning in the beginning was the word. There was no time in all of existence where the word was not. That's, it's a hard way to get our minds around the statement that the word has always been. There, there is never a time where he was not. So he's eternally existent. Number two, he is in some manner distinct from the father, right? John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Meaning the word and, and God are in some manner distinct from one another so that they can be with or toward one another in eternity. And then the third statement is that the word is himself God, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, himself fully God. These three truths establish the boundaries around the doctrine of Jesus' divinity. So this word, according to John, as we saw or we heard read in our, our text this morning, was also the glory of God 
and the Son of God. See in verse 14, we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. So this passage, along with the remainder of the biblical confession, has led to the church to establish or articulate the doctrine of what we call the Trinity, right? Simply stated, now it's not a simple concept, but you can state it simply, right? Again, not comprehension. How does this all work? There's not an analogy that you can come up with that makes sense of this. This is why it's mysterious and has to be submitted to by faith because any analogy that we have in creation breaks down somewhere. But the statement is simple. The statement is this. There is one God who exists eternally in three persons. One in nature, being, essence, and three in personhood, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that is the historic profession of the doctrine of the Trinity as it's laid out through the church. Now applied to this passage, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, the Son of God, existing eternally as God. Okay, so that's our background review. Now today, coming to the humanity of Jesus, Roman numeral three, the word became flesh. So John tells us as he's walking through this meditation on the word of God, he tells us that at a moment in time, the eternal word became flesh. In this one statement, John describes what could be talked about as like a theological ocean of reality. I mean, this one statement is like an ocean that you could go swimming in for the rest of eternity, and you probably will, and you will not come to the end of it, end of its glory, the end of its meaning, the end of its implications. The word became flesh. This truth is what's often known as the incarnation. It's just a fancy way of saying this truth which is the act through which the Son of God or the Word of God assumed a full human nature in order to fulfill God's purposes of redemption. So letter B, whereas the eternal Word has no beginning, no end, cannot change. Okay, so the eternal Word is God. God has no beginning. He has no end. He cannot change. The incarnate son, Jesus of Nazareth, began to be at a moment and is subject to the full reality of human experience outside of sin, which means limitations, growth, uh, the ability to suffer, the ability to die. Okay, this is going to press us as we walk through this. So elsewhere, In the Gospels, we see the act of creation that describes Jesus' conception as a demonstration both of his full divinity and his full humanity. Look with me at Luke chapter 1. So when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary before Jesus' birth, he gives her this message about what's about to happen. And in this message, we see so much of what John is going to come back later and describe for us in a real quick sentence. The word became flesh. Look at verse 26. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin named Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And then she's confused. She's wondering what kind of greeting this is. Why in the world are you talking to me this way? And the angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now take that and underline it. Okay, that, that wording is really important. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So all that the angel is telling you right now or telling Mary right now is this is going to be your son. You will conceive him inside of you. He will grow. You will bear him. And he will be a true son of David. And he will sit on the throne of his father David. Now to be a son of David, what do you have to be? Anybody? Born. Born? You have to be a what? A human. Right? You have to be a human. So this is the angel Gabriel telling Mary, your son is going to be a man. Now, Mary goes, okay, how is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. That's not how things happen. Right? I've never, I've never been with a man. How is this going to be? And the angel answers and he says, this is how it's going to be. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. He will be the Son of God, which is demonstrating that he is God. Okay? So look at the top of page two. So we see this in this announcement of Gabriel to Mary. This passage first demonstrates for us that Jesus is truly conceived in the womb of Mary. This establishes the true and full humanity of Jesus of Nazareth. There was a conglomerate of cells that began to be at a moment in time that are truly human. That the word of God the eternal word of God assumed as his. And they grew and they multiplied. And there was a heartbeat at whatever week that happens really early. And then he had like the fingers, right? Have you ever seen a picture before the arms like come in fully? This little, you know, Jesus was a pea size one time. And then a grape. I think there's apps now that tell you what size your baby is at any given moment. Jesus was conceived not as partially human, as if a type of apparition of a divine being in human form. Rather, Jesus is conceived in Mary's womb knit together like any other human body with a, with a mind, with a soul, with a frame, with a DNA code, okay? 
Jesus is truly conceived in the womb of Mary. But the passage also demonstrates for us that it is the Son of God who is assuming this humanity within the womb of Mary, right? Because this is an act of pure creation. Now think about this. Think about just like God took dust back in Genesis 1 and created Adam as a true human and breathed life into him. In a similar manner, God took, God the Holy Spirit came on Mary, took from her and conceived a true human inside of Mary's womb. Jesus is able to be truly who he is in eternity, namely the son of God, because this is an act of pure creation. So throughout history of the church, the church has sought to give shape to this reality of the incarnate son of God by declaring, now this is going to be in similar manner to the doctrine of Trinity, but this is how we try to understand Jesus. In one person, meaning Jesus of Nazareth, there exists two natures, human and divine, and they're not confused with one another. Now that's a really heady, intense concept. But essentially what it's saying is they don't join to become a third way of being. Jesus isn't like some third nature. Jesus always is fully human. So everything you see him do, he is doing as a full man. And he is fully God. Expressing his divine character in the nature of a person. Okay, pull it back, yeah, smoke in the ears. We aren't to comprehend this, we are to worship him. And we're going to get to the implications of that here in a minute. I just want to blow our minds for a, a little while though. Look at letter F. I'm gonna let you read all of the stuff under E. This is like the different uh, distortions of that reality as they've played themselves out. Uh, You can read that on your own. We must see from the scripture that it is the person of the eternal son who exists as a true and full human being, precisely in the fullness of what it means to be human, meaning he has a human nature, he bears human limitations, He is in one place at one time. The Psalm 139, God, where can I go from your presence? Nowhere, right? Can I go to the highest height, the lowest depth? Where can I go to the ends of the earth and you are not there? That God expressed and joined to a human nature that is in one place at one time. Limitations. Mutability, meaning he grows and changes and develops the ability to suffer, even die. As we look at the life of Jesus, we must understand that this is the son of God existing within a human life and a human nature. To seek to comprehend this completely pushes our intellectual capacities to their limits because there is not a simple analogy elsewhere in creation to help us comprehend this reality. It must be received by faith welcoming us into a posture of humble worship and adoration of the Son of God, who has truly assumed a truly and fully human existence in Jesus. Let me read this quote to you. This is one of my favorites. 
Anyone contemplating the life of Jesus needs to be newly and more deeply aware every single day that something impossible, something scandalous has occurred, that God in his absolute being has resolved to manifest himself in a human life. God has determined to make himself known in a human life. And I love the next sentence of this. And he actually has the power to do it. That should make your mind get to the breaking point. That's a good thing. Okay, look at top of page three. Now I want to do that just by walking through Jesus's life for a minute. I want us to look at him and see that he had a real human life. The scriptures present a beautiful portrait of the human life of Jesus. Although there is great mystery in the portrait, we're invited to see that the son has taken on what it means to be truly human from his conception throughout his whole life. So first, Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, just like we talked about, and grew from embryonic form through a whole period of normal human gestation. Okay, so there were nine months. I would like this to, I would like you to think about this at one point. Take this and just put it in the cooker at some point and just start thinking about it. There were nine months at one point in human history where God in the flesh lived inside the womb of a peasant girl. Okay. For those nine months, Mary is essentially the temple, right? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ living inside a woman that nobody had any idea. She's walking around bearing reproach that people think that she's been unfaithful and she's carrying an illegitimate child and inside of her womb is the eternal word of God. It's unbelievable. Okay? So he takes this on himself. As an infant, Jesus, again, the eternal word of God, was vulnerable and needed to be cared for and protected. Jesus, uh, we see here, look at uh, Luke 2. Mary gives birth to her firstborn son and wraps him in swaddling clothes. Why does she wrap him in swaddling clothes? Because he would get cold, right? He'd be cold, right? He's vulnerable. He needs to be taken care of and protected. Look at this in Matthew 2. When the Magi departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and, and his mother, not him other, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Jesus, the eternal word, had to be protected by Joseph. He had to be protected. He was vulnerable. He was able to be, uh, uh, he needed to be protected from both, yeah, the things here and uh, elements. Look at number three. Jesus remained as a child, submitted to his parents. Have you ever thought about this? 
Jesus had to obey, right? Hey, Jesus, don't do that. Okay. Kids in the room. Jesus had to obey his parents. Luke 2. And he went down with them to Nazareth and was what? Submissive to them. If any child in the history of the world had the right to look at their parents and say, I know better than you. (laughs) It was Jesus. And Jesus submitted to his family, to his parents. As a child, this one will push your brain. Jesus grew in knowledge, in wisdom, in understanding, in stature, meaning mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and experiencing God's favor. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and with man. Think about this. The eternal word of God had to learn the scriptures. He had to take in for the first time the scripture that he breathed out as a man. His human mind had to engage it and had to uh, think on it and learn it and ingest it. He was subject to that. He didn't come out of the womb memorizing the Old Testament. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn uh, how to take in the truth of the word. Now, he did this without sin. That is what's beautiful about it. But he faced all of those realities in his life. Jesus lived for 30 years in near obscurity and steadfast obedience before he was anointed to fulfill his ministry and proclaim the kingdom and bear redemption. Okay, Jesus walked the earth for 30 years, quote unquote, doing nothing. And what I mean by that is, I don't know how much I'm going to get to this. Have you ever thought about the amount of people that Jesus didn't heal? The amount of needs that didn't go met? The amount of suffering he witnessed that he, it was not yet his time? Like God in the flesh walking for 30 years not doing a single miracle. Now, I want this to press in on us for a couple, way, for a couple reasons. Number one, God does things very differently, differently than we do. And his purposes are very different than the way we would do them, right? We would have Jesus show up and do it all in one fell swoop, right? Speak a word and it's all different. Jesus was patient. He had to walk in submission to God's way and his timing and the way that he uh, pulled forth his purpose or, or laid it out. Jesus had to submit to all those things. That's number one reason. Number two reason is I want you to recognize that when you look at the life of Jesus, um, he is not 
necessarily doing what he does because he is God. Now, he reveals God to you, but he is also walking as a man. He needed to be empowered by the Spirit to fulfill his ministry. He had to be anointed by God to heal the sick and raise the dead. And we'll get to that in a minute. So Jesus walks around for 30 years in absolute obscurity, just as some carpenter's son from Nazareth. Look at letter C. The scriptures invite us to see that Jesus experienced a full range of human emotions, experiences, limitations. I'm just going to fly through these. Jesus was hungry and thirsty. Jesus experienced human emotions, human thoughts, right? He wept. He was moved. He had compassion. He was angry. He rejoiced. He was surprised. You know the times when he walks into a situation and somebody says something to him and it says he marveled? Do you know what that means? He was shocked. I like to think that there were times when Jesus would get surprised by something and kind of look up at heaven and go, huh, I didn't see that one coming. You didn't let me know that was coming. There were things that Jesus didn't know, right? So when he's marveled, that's not just the scriptures making something up. He actually was surprised in that moment. He marveled. He's like, this is, this is what I'm looking for. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Jesus experienced those realities. Look at the top of page four. Jesus needed to sleep. He needed to rest. Israel's God, who neither sleeps nor slumbers, had to sleep in the stern of a boat in between itinerant ministry experiences because he was so tired. So tired, the storm is blowing all around him and he's sleeping right through it. Jesus declared there was information that he did not know. Matthew 24, concerning the day, the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Okay, letter D, Jesus was anointed by the spirit to fulfill his ministry. He was anointed at his baptism in order to be empowered to do the thing that God had purposed for him. Jesus was baptized immediately. He comes out of the water and the heavens are open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending on him like a dove. John says he was told he would know the Messiah by the one that the spirit descended upon and remained. He would be the one who would fulfill God's purposes. Jesus himself understood he was endued with power by the spirit to accomplish the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes. This is Jesus in Luke chapter four, when he stands up and reads from the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord's upon me. He's anointed me to do these things. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one who has been empowered by the spirit to do this. Look at number three. Again, this is just fodder for your utter awe later. Jesus's ministry was limited according to God's will And there are times that the scripture tells us that Jesus' ministry was hindered by the unbelief and hardness of human hearts. Look at John 5. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, the son does nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So Jesus goes, I walk into a, a place 
full of paralytics and, and sick people, right? This is, this is where he's at the pool of Bethesda. There's people waiting to be healed. He walks in and he picks one of them. Why? Because it's what the father was doing. He says, I only do what the father's doing. My ministry is limited to submitting to what God the Father's at work doing. Look at Mark chapter six. And Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It's because of the hardness of their hearts. It says that he could not do a mighty work there. Luke five seventeen. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Seems to imply in the retelling of it, why would the eyewitness say, hey, the power of God was with him that day? Seems to imply potentially that there were days when it wasn't like that. When God's power was not moving in that manner that day. Letter E, Jesus suffered and died. Jesus suffered agony and horror facing his impending death in the experience of bearing the sins of the world. He experienced this at such a great level that he had to choose to submit his own will to the will of the Father. He experienced the normal and natural fear and apprehension that you would feel on the doorstep of your death. Look at this. He knelt down, he prayed. He said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Take this away from me. Nevertheless, not my will be be done, but yours. There appeared to him an angel from heaven that strengthened him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus experienced real pain, real suffering, and a real death upon the cross. The men holding Jesus in custody mocked him and they beat him. When they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. They didn't break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw this bore witness to it. His testimony is true. He is telling the truth that you might believe. So why does this matter? Right? Jesus, we see in the scripture this unbelievable portrait that Jesus came as a man and he lived as a man. He experienced life as a man. He ministered as a man. He suffered as a man. He died as a man. There are a whole lot of reasons that I think this matters. There are a lot of real effects that this has in the Christian life. I'm only going to talk about a few of them and probably not as intensely as I would like to. Look at letter C. The humanity of Jesus, first and foremost, affirms God's commitment to his creation. The biblical testimony tells us that creation is good. 
It was good. It was made according to God's design and his goodness and his desire. But because of sin, it has been subjected to a curse, to futility. It doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. And rather than God speaking a word at the moment that sin entered the world and torching everything and disintegrating everything and annihilating it all, he demonstrated his commitment to bring redemption to it. So much so that the second person of the Trinity, the word of God, assumed creatureliness forever. Forever. He is committed to his creation. He's joined himself forever to the created order in assuming human nature in the man Jesus Christ. He doesn't cast it off. He is committed to fulfill his purpose to bring redemption. Look at letter D. As a man, Jesus fulfills the purposes of mankind. His intention in all of creation was that humans would act as image bearers, fill the earth with the knowledge of God's glory, that they would have rule and dominion over the created order. However, because of the sin of our first parents, that dominion and rule was fractured and usurped. You can see those scriptures there, but the the purpose of the scripture was always that there would be a person who would rule over creation as the regent for God himself, made in his image, demonstrating God's character, his likeness, as he uh, enacted God's purposes by subduing and ruling over the earth. Our first parents abdicated that responsibility. They gave it over in sin and we each have followed in their footsteps and by our sin have denounced our right to do that. And Jesus comes and fulfills the purpose of mankind, living as the new and last Adam who would be the representative for all of new creation. All right, look at number six or page six. Letter E, as a man, Jesus provides redemption and mediates between God and man. So one of the early church fathers in that big section that I skipped, there's a quote in there that I want you to go back and look at later. But it's an early church father would talk about the reason that Jesus had to take on full humanity is that which he did not assume, he cannot redeem. So he took it all on so that he could redeem it all. He could redeem you in the whole of who you are, your mind, your soul, your spirit, your body even at the resurrection. He took it on so that he could redeem it all. We see that the full redemption of our humanity hinges on the son of God assuming a full humanity. As a man, he redeems every single part of us, our bodies, our souls, our spirits. And Paul declares that it's only the man, Jesus Christ, who can mediate between God and men. Look at 1 Timothy 2. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. As a man, letter F, Jesus leads many to glory. Look at Hebrews 2 here. I just want you to see this. This is the author of Hebrews meditating on 
why must our Savior take on a human frame? It was fitting in God's desire and his design for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing, bringing many sons to glory that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He said, God designed it because he wants the man Jesus Christ as one who shares in your flesh and blood, your weakness, who shares in your frame, who understands what it means to live in a weak and broken world, though he did not sin. He, as the leader of your salvation, he had to learn what it meant to walk in obedience to the Lord so that he could lead a train of sons into glory. The author of Hebrews lays it out that way. As a man, Jesus leads many to glory. I'll let you look at letter G on your own and we'll close with letter H. In his humanity, Jesus defeats sin and death. All throughout the scriptures, we were promised that there would be one from the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. From the very beginning, at the moment of first sin, God said, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to send one from your kind to bring redemption. And we see in Jesus as that had uh, expanded and God showed more of how he would do it. In Jesus Christ, we see it is because of his flesh and his blood, his obedience, his death and his resurrection that we have salvation and that he has defeated sin and death for all time. Jesus' body was broken so that the chastisement to bring peace for you and for me and for any who would call upon his name would rest on him. Look at Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. To be pierced, you have to have a body. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement, the discipline for our peace was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus had to have a body. He had to be a human in order to receive the chastening that was deserved for you and me because of our sin. The chastening for our peace had to be laid upon him. He had to be pierced for our transgressions. Jesus's blood was shed to bring forgiveness of sins in the new covenant. We see that in Ephesians chapter one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass. His blood had to be spilt and shed so that we might have forgiveness. Number three, Jesus overcame the curse of death through his death. Later in Hebrews 2, in the same idea as when he talks about leading many sons to glory, he says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus did, his, the author of your salvation. Why? So that through death, he might destroy the one that has power of death. That is the devil. Jesus had to be a man to come and provide salvation for any and all who would call upon his name. 
any and all who would humble themselves, who would look to him and to him alone for their righteousness, for their standing before God. We could not earn it ourselves. We deserved the moment of our sin to be cast away from God's presence forever. And we needed redemption and salvation and wholeness and life. And only in Christ Jesus can we have that. And it's actually why we celebrate communion every single week. Why we come and respond in that way is to remember that it's only through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ through faith in him that we have life in him. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to respond to the truth of who he is, both in song and by coming to the table this morning. Uh, if you believe in that, if you look to Jesus and to Jesus alone, I want to invite you to come and take this meal with us. The way we take communion at Redeemer is we tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. You have wine in the stoneware and juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle in both sides of the balcony. And we have a gluten-free station to my right, to your left. And if you're in the room this morning and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we wanna ask that you not come take this meal with us. This meal is a signifier of the reality that we look to the man Jesus Christ and to him alone for our salvation. Through his death and resurrection, we find life. And so if you do not believe in that, don't come and take this meal with us. Just stay in your seat. We're really glad you're here this morning. Uh, we have prayers on cards in the back uh, and the seat back in front of you. If you wanna uh, grapple with what it might look like to pray this morning, uh, but don't feel the pressure to come and take this meal. But I'm gonna pray for us. Those who are receiving are welcome to come forward. Servers, you can come forward as well. And we'll respond in song by coming to the table. And as we do every single week, we've got people in the room that would love to pray with you, pray for you, ask the Lord to reveal himself to you, ask him to wash you, to... Uh, to, to strengthen you if you have needs or you just desire to uh, respond to the Lord this morning. We have people that would love to stand with you and ask him to move. But I'm gonna pray now and then we'll come when we're ready. Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the reality that it pleased you to come to send your son in the likeness of our frame, that in him we might have life, that he might live in obedience to your perfect will, will, that he might suffer the death that we deserve, that he might show us what you're like, that he might lead us into glory. God, would you come and speak this morning? Reveal yourself to us. Just like I prayed at the beginning, God, would you show us the man Jesus as beautiful and glorious? God, would we be filled by faith this morning to receive, to know, to love? Would you come and move in our midst? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.